0: work of jesus christ that is a glorious thought and that's a phrase that you hear a lot in this church you hear it a lot probably in other reformed churches as well and that's really the message uh, through and through of this book of hebrews and really of the whole new testament you know we don't hear much focus on the finished work of christ in most churches the focus is on other things The focus is on experience or the focus is on good works, getting people maybe to make a one-time decision for Christ and then moving on to bigger and better things, more relevant things, experiences, what we're to be about doing in this world in the course of our lives. The finished work of Christ doesn't factor in much in the emphasis of Many, and I would say most churches, the emphasis is all on us. It's on man. It's on man's works. His ongoing works, rather than the finished work, Christ. Although say, yes, we believe in the work of Christ. We believe he died for us. Then we need to get on to other things. We need to be talking about uh, the more practical things of life. Getting on to talking about what's relevant for our daily living and uh, what we need to be doing in our lives, doing good works, changing the culture, or whatever else it might be. And the finished work of Christ kind of gets packed away as a, a little forgotten part of a church's statement of faith. You can maybe find it on their website or in their documents. But the whole emphasis of preaching and teaching goes a different direction. It goes to the works of man. Man's works replace the finished work of Christ in the life and ministry of most churches and in many believers, a professing believers in any well, there is no hope in that. I would tell you, there's no comfort in that. If you're in a church that does emphasize uh, these things, the the finished work of Christ, um, you're blessed. There is comfort and encouragement in the gospel. And when you leave a church like that and you go uh, to uh, many other churches, you're going to find it's like a desert. You're going to be pointed over and over again to yourself. And what you need to be doing, and I'll tell you, that will not make you a happy person. That will not build up your faith. That will not comfort and encourage your heart. That will not strengthen you for the long haul and make you actually want to press on in living the Christian life. If your focus is all on the Christian life and you're trying to live it, you'll actually be sabotaging your Christian life. You have to focus on Christ and the life that he lived, and the death that he died once and for all. Only then will you have that assurance, that comfort, that peace, that joy, and and a growing love for God that you need to actually press on in the Christian life. The writer of Hebrews saw something like that happening in his day. Maybe a little parallel to what I've just described he warns his readers against this temptation that they were facing to fall away from their trust in the finished work of christ they were falling away many of them back to judaism with its emphasis on doing and working and striving and performing and here in chapter 10 the writer wants to deal a death blow To that temptation. And the way he does it is by emphasizing the once and for all sacrifice of Christ as God's final answer to man's great need. The law and the whole old covenant system was just a shadow pointing forward to Jesus Christ and the work that he would do and the better things that he would accomplish for his people. So why, why would anyone want to go back to the old shadows, that empty shell of a religion, now that the reality, the fullness, has... the writer opens chapter 10 with a kind of a biblical history lesson. He says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities that's a powerful image that's how we should think about uh, the old covenant it's just a shadow it was just a, a foreshadowing of the far better realities that were to come in christ when he would come shadows pass away they don't last very long and in this case the reality has to replace the shadow John Calvin has a very interesting way of uh, describing this. He says, the law and all its rights, and he's he's referring to the whole Old Covenant system, uh, not just the the commandments, but uh, the sacrifices, the the tabernacle, uh, all of it. He says, all these things were just like an artist's rough sketch that he does before he moves forward to create the full color master painting. I don't know if any of you are artists, but that's the way uh, you create a painting. You do a rough uh, sketch or an underdrawing for that painting first to kind of sketch out uh, the, the basic outline of uh, what that painting's gonna become. And then, and only then, do you go in, fill in, uh, the, the shading, and then you add the color to uh, this so that it becomes the full-blown painting. He says the Old Covenant was like that kind of a rough sketch. Christ is the full-color masterpiece. And who would want to settle for that old, rough sketch over the finished master and all its beauty? It's just an absurd thought. Why would you want to go back uh, and focus on uh, da Vinci's little pencil thumbnail sketches? Now they themselves might be beautiful, but why focus on the, little, the, the sketches, the, the studies when you've got the finished, priceless masterpiece, the Mona Lisa, to enjoy? The shadows have to pass away. Kent Hughes offers another illustration, one even more. Absurd. When he began dating his future wife, she gave him a picture of her. Maybe some of you did the same. He kept that picture with him all the time. He loved the picture. It was a nice picture. Later, of course, they were married. And then he was delighted far more to have and to hold his new bride in the flesh. She was so much better than that black and white picture. That picture was fine as far as it went, but... After he had the reality, the picture went into a drawer and he hardly ever thought of it again. But he writes, imagine if one day I appeared before my wife holding that old photograph and I said, my dear, I've missed your picture so much. And I'm going back to it. (laughs) I really am attached to this silhouette and the shading and the matte finish. And then I passionately kiss the glass protecting the photograph. And I clutch it to my chest and exit, mumbling my devotion to that photograph. I love you, oh photograph of my wife. You're everything to me. That's so silly. Now, How would you ladies react if your husband did something like that? Probably take him to the doctor. I think he needs to be examined. That's just absurd. No one would do something like this. But that's exactly what the early church was doing by turning away from Christ to go back to the old covenant, that old covenant system, going back to the shadow instead of the reality. And the writer is trying to help these people see the absurdity of that, the foolishness of it, the law and all that it entailed, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the whole system of the Old Covenant, all those things just foreshadowed the reality of Jesus Christ. And the whole system had serious imperfections, and the writer begins to point those out in verses 1 through 4 here. He says, "...the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities." And it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to have been offered, having once been cleansed. And he goes on and says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This whole system was flawed. This whole system was just like that picture of that woman, this was just a picture of Christ who was to come. The author of Hebrews was not the first to understand that these animal sacrifices could not really do the thing that they pictured. It could not, they could not really take away sins. And we see comments in the Old Testament writers again and again to this effect that these sacrifices were not effectual. They were not pleasing to the Lord. Now, the Lord put these sacrifices in place, and he put them there because they were a picture that were meant to point people to Christ. David writes in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Isaiah wrote, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have had more than enough of your burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing Meaningless offerings. God said through Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. And through Amos, he said, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Though you bring me burnt offerings and offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. There's many more statements like this throughout the Old Testament. Again, God instituted these offerings for a purpose. The people were not to put their faith in these offerings in any sense. They were meant to point them to Christ. They were meant to show them their sin and their need for a Savior. But because the old, old Testament system, the old, uh, old Covenant system, could not take away sin, it left people uh, in their sinful condition, and it left them with a guilty conscience. The writer highlights this as well. Sin and guilt were not really dealt with yet, and so the person could never have comfort, could never have a sense of uh, a cleansed conscience. They could never say It is well with my soul. They had no assurance of God's grace like they would under the new covenant. Instead, they always felt a a sense of being guilty, being separated from God. The conscience could never rest at ease. Verse 3 says, In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. He's pointing to the yearly Day of Atonement there and the sacrifice that was carried out on it. Sensitive hearts were reminded of their sin certainly by the rituals of that day and of course that day had to be repeated every year it had to be carried out again and again over and over and it all just pressed upon the conscience of the worshipper and it highlighted the need for something better a better way a better sacrifice that would truly deal with their sin, that would fully and permanently provide forgiveness. Now, the Old Covenant was good as far as it went. It was like that picture of the woman. It was a far cry from the reality. And it was temporary. It was meant to be temporary. And it was very imperfect. It could not, in the least, actually take away sin. It couldn't cleanse the conscience. It couldn't, as the writer says, Make perfect those who draw near. And that's what sinners need. It could never really cure the disease. And so that whole system and everything about it left the people still longing for something better. Longing for the cure. And that final cure, that true remedy for sin and guilt is what the writer points to. Next, beginning in verse 5. Here we see a, a brief glimpse of a conversation. A divine conversation that took place within the Godhead, apparently before Jesus came into the world. The writer is drawing from Psalm 40 as he writes here beginning in verse 5. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice, an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. Psalm 40, of course, was written by David, but the Holy Spirit was inspiring David to write these words, not about himself, but about the future mission of the Messiah, the Savior, when he would come into the world some thousand years later. Psalm 40 is foretelling Christ, being born, coming into the world, born as a man, born under the law to fulfill the law. Again, verse 5 says, when Christ came into the world, he said, a body you have prepared for me. A body, a fully human nature that would be joined to the eternal son of God's divine nature in the womb of the virgin, the incarnation. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this person, this glorious Person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, came to obey God fully. He came to do exactly what we sinners needed to do, were commanded to do, but could never actually do, to obey God fully. We just keep sinning because sinners is what we are by nature. We sin because we're sinners. And that's why those sacrifices were needed, and that's why they were uh, continually repeated as a reminder to man of his great need for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to a holy God. And they were there as a reminder that those things, forgiveness, reconciliation, can only come through blood, only through a body, a life being sacrificed. And this was part of his obedience as well, Christ when he came into the world. And why was this necessary? The sacrifice of life in order for sin to be forgiven why was it necessary for christ to come and provide this obedience and this sacrifice again it was because of our disobedience the emphasis here that's what we're being reminded we are the disobedient jesus christ came into the world to be the obedient one and he also came to be the sacrifice god was not pleased with those endless sacrifices of the old covenant, he too was looking for another sacrifice. He desires obedience from his people. We need to be clear about that. And so he sends Christ into the world to do what we could not. He sent him to live a perfect, obedient, holy life that we fall so far short of. Jesus did God's will in that way, by obeying all God's law. And he did that so that all his obedience, his human obedience, his perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law could be counted to us, could be reckoned to us, credited to our account. And then he also, after having spent his life in Perfect obedience to the Father, He laid down His life as the one perfect, infinitely valuable sacrifice for sin. The only one that can truly take away sin. The one that all the others pointed to. Here is the real one. And the Father was well pleased with His Son, not only with His active obedience, obeying the law during His lifetime, but what theologians call his passive obedience, his sacrifice, his death on the cross. This was the wonderful obedience of Jesus Christ. Only his perfect obedience satisfied God the Father. And that's why we must trust in him, in him alone. He's the only one, the only obedient one, and the only sacrifice for sin that does the job to bring about our forgiveness and when we do trust in him we're united to him and the father counts his perfect obedience as ours and he counts his sacrifice as paying for all our sins past present and future then he also gives us new life this is not just a a positional righteousness that he gives to us uh, Uh, taking away our guilt and then giving us a positional righteousness in his sight, he gives us new life as well. Those he justifies, he sanctifies. Those he uh, declares righteous, he also indwells with his spirit. So we begin to live a new changed life, we who trust him, a life of new growing obedience. Again, very imperfect obedience, but real obedience. In God's sight, we are counted as absolutely perfect in Christ already. But we're also progressing daily in our actual lives and growing more and more to be like Christ, growing in our obedience, growing in holiness, growing in our pleasing of the Lord. Verse 9 ends by saying, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That is, he did away with the whole Old Covenant system to establish a better way, a new and living way that he opened for us. Jesus' life and death opened the way to God for sinners, for the worst of sinners. And we couldn't get there any other way. But this perfect Savior came and obeyed He pleased the Father. And now all who come to God through him, through faith in him, are fully accepted. Forever we can enter heaven and have eternal life through him, through Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth. And verse 10 concludes this section. The writer says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This verse is telling us that we are now set apart. We are holy in Christ now. We who have faith in Christ, we're set apart from sin. We are made holy to God because Jesus offered up his life for us once and for all. We're no longer in the same position as the rest of the fallen world in God's sight. We are set apart. We're cleansed. We are marked out as the Lord's people, all because of Jesus, all because of his finished work, not because of our obedience, but because of his perfect, oh, precious life laid down for our sin. So how should we actually live then? How should we live our lives practically now in light of all these things, in light of These things that the Lord has done for us through his son. Well, first of all, we should not ever dream or think of turning away from the reality to go back to shadows or to anything else. We should never think about turning from Christ for anything that this world offers us. Whatever it may be, we should cling to him for dear life. Always, with all our might, help us to do so. The Father is pleased with Jesus Christ. And he is pleased with us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And he'll be pleased with us in no other way. So we must keep holding fast to the saved and resting in his finished work. Finished work of Christ. Secondly, we should do what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12.1. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As saved people, people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we need to live our lives now as living sacrifices, and as thank offerings to God. We should be so thankful for what he's done for us so thankful for him saving us we should worship him and serve him with love and devotion and in holiness in a real sense these words of jesus apply to us in our lives now he said a body you have prepared for me burnt offerings and sin offerings, and those you've taken no pleasure. I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Believer, you have a body, you have a life to live. It is for this, to do God's will, live pleasing to Him, to be a living sacrifice, pleasing to your Lord and your Savior. Do you want to please God now, Want him to be pleased with you. you, must keep living by faith in the Son of God, who gave Himself for you. Perfectly pleased, the Father in your place. Keep looking to Him for grace to enable you to walk with Him in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so perfect. It's hard to believe that it could be true that you would apply it to us. We don't deserve such a gift, such grace. We certainly haven't earned such good treatment from you. We haven't worked for it. We're like the thief on the cross who has simply been given heaven freely as a gift because of your amazing grace and love. This is such great news that you do this for sinners. We thank you, Lord, and cause it to take hold of all our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would cause it to take hold of any here who don't know you yet. We thank you and we praise you for your wonderful Son, our perfect Savior, and his once-for-all finished work on our behalf. It's in his name we pray.